0: This is the last of the six weeks. Um, Good to have you back. Uh, So I mentioned last week, towards the end, it was very clear, there are more questions on simplicity. And that was one of the last, I think, the second-to-last spiritual discipline we talked about. And so I thought I would start out by filling in a few um, holes that I skipped along the way without realizing it, just for clarity. And then we're going to move on from simplicity into um, study, meditation, and finally, contemplation. We should be able to cover um, most everything I planned. So this works out really well. So recall that simplicity is, I mean, really the best way to define it is by looking at its opposite, a word we sometimes use probably more often than simplicity. Duplicity, the two-world person, the idea that you have one foot in the world and trusting in the promises of the world and another foot on the promises of God and like just in case I'll have faith and trust in Jesus, too. Simplicity is being a single-minded, I want to follow Jesus. This is the discipline. It's choosing what you're all about. Are you all about the world, or are you all about God? And it's, it's really hard words to hear, but it's one of Jesus' main lessons, and it's usually those lessons that make you cringe uh, when he says things, and it seems really obnoxious, uh, that's often Jesus cutting to the core of simplicity. Um, you know, Jesus, I'd love to follow you, but first to have to bury my dead parents. And eh, let the dead bury their own dead. Come follow me. He's getting at simplicity right there. And you're like, whoa, that's harsh. Well, he's teaching us that we need to be single-minded. That's a better way to say it. Single-minded individuals seek first the kingdom of God. Seek with a single mind the kingdom of God. Um, And so I'm going to bring up some references in a second. But what this is, what simplicity is, it's really freedom from yourself and from external constraints. Uh, When we look at the world, we see the worship of all sorts of things that are tempting to us. Uh, We worship wealth, popularity, technology... We worship education and knowledge and experience. We worship all sorts of things. And you see that clearly in our culture. And simplicity is trying to cut these out, not in the sense that they're bad, but in the sense that they would have any undue pressure on you. That you wouldn't continue to buy things because it makes you look like such and such a person or you wouldn't pursue popularity or a social media presence simply because it makes you look like such and such a person. Again, these are all things that a Christian would say, they're actually good things, or at least they're not necessarily bad. Um, But we tend to worship these. Simplicity is going to cut that out. So it helps you become the person who habitually clings to Jesus, who has both feet on the promises of God. And not one foot in each world. Uh, the spiritual discipline really does cut to the core, doesn't it? We've talked about giving, uh, we've talked about uh, solitude, we t- talk about service, um, but all these are getting at become the kind of person you are in Jesus, and this is really just a summation of that. Be kind, become the kind of person you are in Jesus. It's, it's all over the Bible, but the word is simplicity, kind of like the word Trinity, or theology, that's not used in scripture in such a way, but the concept is there very consistently. Um, I cut out some of the really jarring references. I'll often tell my students, I won't act like Jesus. Uh, when you come to me and you have a grandparent that passed away, I will let you take the time off. Uh, just to make a point, and this really does undercut, no longer do I hear, Professor, can you show me some grace? <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, I do it when you don't ask. Um, <laughs> Jesus cuts to the core often. And so, you know, just turning to Matthew 6 is really a lesson on simplicity. And it's a lesson of our hearts making many, many idols do not store up for yourself treasures on earth, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. For where your treasure is, here's the point, there will be your, be your heart also. Where your treasure is, where your hope is, where your security is, where that one thing that if you lose it, your life is over, you know what I mean? You know, where that thing is, well, there you are. That's who you are. Jesus is getting at simplicity here. Don't be a duplicitous person. Come, follow me. And uh, later, and, um, you know, kind of ironically the point, you know, lose yourself so you can gain it, die to yourself so you can truly live. The the irony of the gospel is that we receive all things from God. Um, But you do it through loss. You do it through denying, you know, your edemic pleasures, your fallen Genesis 3 pleasures, and come follow Jesus instead. Seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. It's a reference to life now to some extent, but the new heavens and the new earth, the promise that those who do lose, lose, them, lose their lives will gain it. Paul reflects this in many respects, in many ways. Again, never using the term simplicity. Um, This is actually how I began the class. What spiritual formation is, is the motto, I've been crucified with Christ, I no longer live, but he and me. And again, this is that single-minded, focused, Christocentric life. I'm following Jesus at all costs. If I lose him, everything's over. But if I lose something else, it might hurt me, but I'll be okay. Um, You know, maybe here's a fun passage to put on your refrigerator. It's really a good one. And it's Paul just reflecting on this life of simplicity without ever saying it that way. I've learned to be content, he says, whatever the circumstances. This is a reflection of simplicity. Simplicity. You know it's hard. You know it's really easy to be content sometimes, and then when something changes, uh, it's hard, and that's, that's an idol, right? When, when something goes wrong and you have to attend to it, maybe you like comfort, and your life is just great because it's comfortable, but then you lose that, and you're like, ah, I worship the God of comfort. We often worship gods uh, without recognizing it until we heed to this sort of stuff, and then you start figuring out where your heart is. Here's a verse we don't often quote. Why not? It's in the Bible. But Paul's getting at somewhat of a life of simplicity. Again, put this on your refrigerator. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business. Is that Paul? (laughs) That loud, obnoxious, really zealous Paul. Really? Um, Yeah, well, there's, there's a sense in which, man... There's something here. Live the simple life. Make Jesus known and otherwise be forgotten. Remember uh, Zinzendorf. Preach the gospel, die, be forgotten. Well, that's a life of simplicity right there. So, um, how is this a spiritual discipline? You you see it, and I've kind of already said it, and I think this was mentioned last week. This is about allegiance. It's about... uh, Pledging, okay, I'm starting to have an American overtones here, but pledging allegiance to Jesus, right, and him over all loyalties, right? It's freedom from worldly values. We, we, I often hear, at least I often hear, simplicity in terms of negation. Simplicity is giving your stuff up, giving all your money, no, your money away or whatever. And it might look like that. It often doesn't. But it does look like giving stuff up. But it's the positive affirmation here that it's freedom from worshiping like the world does. Right? We're taught to hoard, hoard things. And this isn't just money and wealth and et cetera. This is hoarding attention. I want, I want, I want more, more, more. Uh, whatever it is, hoarding popularity, uh, people's opinions of you, Um. I, I I just need more, and, and when somebody says something negative, or when you lose your social media, I don't. I'm I've been just trying to talk to everyone, and we all kind of worship different things. But when we lose that and we feel broken, this is freedom from hoarding. And thus, in the end, it does, this forces us, and this is healthy. If you're constantly asking the question, what does this look like, you're doing it right. This, asks, this forces you to ask the question, what do I need, what do I want, right, and differentiate that. And what does this look like? It looks different historically. Some people have really run with this. Others do it quietly, but they're giving stuff up who's your true allegiance, is what this is getting at. Here's just a fun quote. Richard Foster loves to cut to the core as well. And here's him. I can't actually remember which book I got this quote from. The lust for affluence in contemporary society is psychotic. It is psychotic because it has completely lost touch with reality. We crave things we neither need nor enjoy we buy things we do not want to impress people we do not like. Conformity to a sick society is to be sick. Uh, there's a reflection here, and you can k- kind of think about this, and you can think about moments in your life where this really resonates, maybe moments when it used to, maybe it doesn't as much now. Um, but that's, that's the point of simplicity. It's a reminder that who we really are and what's going to really matter, what's, what I'm going to take to the new heavens and new earth is not you know my stuff, as much as I love X, Y, Z, as much as I really appreciate this thing in my life, that's not, your life is not about what you own, what you have, the popularity you receive. Your life is ultimately boiled down in terms of love and how, how you love and how well you love. And Christ is teaching that's where fulfillment comes. Simplicity is a hard discipline, no doubt. So that was the sixth one we talked about. And then we moved on to solitude and silence. And we, we made our way through that just fine. And the lesson was, uh, you know, take the next eight weeks. If, this is your, if you're feeling called, take the next eight weeks and every day, just for 20 minutes or 30 minutes, just sit alone and listen to God. Solitude, silence, go out in the middle of nowhere once in a while. That, that'll change you doing it once. If you do it right, don't bring headphones and all that jazz. Just, well, bring a phone just in case. But go out and just listen to the crickets. Oh, my goodness, does it change you. So study. This is a spiritual discipline. Our culture values education. I think our churches, our church's tradition values education and study. This one seems more familiar. And yet you don't see Jesus studying for the most part. You know, he kept quiet for 30 years or so. You know what he was doing. Coming to the awareness, holy crap, I'm the Messiah. Holy crap. That's the voices in my head. That's why I can make my teacher disappear. Oh my goodness. And he's reading the scripture and going, I'm Yahweh, right? He's studying Paul after he converts. He's quiet for like, what is it, 11, 13 years, something like that. We don't hear anything from Paul. He's just realizing, oh wait, if... The person I've been persecuting, Jesus, if if Jesus is Yahweh, that changes everything about the Old Testament. You can imagine Paul going back to the Old Testament and study, study, study. Do not undervalue study. Our Savior does it. or uh, We do too, as human beings who are finite. Not sure what happened there. So the need for study, this is uh, often explained in Scripture. I'm just going to choose a couple passages Here's Paul saying, be able to accurately handle the word of truth. Be able to accurately handle the Bible. Something about that. I mean, if God is speaking us through it, it's probably important to understand it well. But also, Paul elsewhere, talking about renewing your mind. And part of this is through study. Don't be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world, the way the world thinks, the way the world feels, the way the world worships but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Study is important, and we know this is a, a discipline because we teach it in our culture. That's why we have school. This one really doesn't run as counter in some respects as something like simplicity. It's almost, well, common sense. Of course, we should know God well. And I mention this on purpose because I'll often hear, well, the point of Christianity is missions. Just be a missionary. So why would you take so much time to study? I've actually heard that a lot when I was getting my higher degrees. Why would you do that? And it's, it's hard to do, respond nicely. But generally, i just say, look at Jesus, look at Paul. Study is something that is invaluable. And when you start, you know... Uh, you, know, you, you know how it is. You start seeing how much you missed before you studied. And you're like, man, God, I know you better. So if you love someone, you're going to want to know everything you can know about that someone, right? And God is kind of like this. We say we love God, and so we want to know God. In fact, you can summarize the whole, you know, Christian thing as I want to know and love God in Christ better, Right? And this is a um, study, of course, as a means of knowing God and learning his priorities. Now, all the disciplines are means of the Holy Spirit transforming us. Some uh, sort of focused on one or two aspects. Study helps us transform our minds. Simplicity, our lives, giving, our wallets, uh, fasting, our food habits. And it, it, it sort of reminds you to keep your idols in check. And study often becomes an idol. At least I find that with my students. Study's even something that ought to be done corporately. And this is something we do on Sunday morning. Maybe you do in Bible study. It's something I, I remember overlooking a lot. Here's a great short video from our favorite Bible Project. Ah, good, it works. And this is getting at the sort of a biblical theology of the public reading of Scripture. Uh, Study in public, especially, and I'm going to zone in on this just for a second. Enjoy. This is interesting and helpful. I was reading the Bible, which, you know, is kind of hard to deal but...
1: I came across this verse that says, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to preaching and teaching. Yeah, this is in Paul's letter to Timothy, a yeah. young pastor. And he's telling him about ways that he can keep his church community engaged with scripture. Okay, so preaching the Bible I get, teaching from the Bible I get that too. But what about this reading scripture together thing? Is that something I'm supposed to care about? Why did Paul think it was so important? Oh man, for Paul, this was a really significant practice for the people of God. Think all the way back to Mount Sinai, where the Israelites were just rescued from Egypt. They're no longer slaves. and They need a new identity, a new story to live by. So Moses, he gathers the people together and he reads the scriptures aloud. He reminds them of where they came from, who they are, and the new future that they're called to live for. This was the first public reading of scripture in the Bible. Yeah, and it didn't stop there. When the people finally got into the land, they did it again. Joshua pulled the people together, and they all listened to the scriptures read aloud so they could remember where they came from and how they could keep living as a part of this new story. So this is something they did all the time then? Well, actually, no. After Joshua died, we don't have any more stories of the people coming together to hear God's word. Instead, the people forgot their story, and a whole generation arose that didn't know their God or what God had done for them. But then, centuries later, a king named Josiah rediscovered the scriptures, and he was so excited that he called Israel to begin this practice once again. It sparked a renewal movement. That is, until the people forgot what's more, and they ended up in exile. And so this is why, when Ezra and Nehemiah came back from the exile, they needed to remind the people who they are and how they are to live. So this is a powerful practice. Yeah, in fact, reading scripture together became a core part of Jewish life. It was done every week as they gathered in synagogue. Jesus himself participated in this practice. He even launched his mission during the weekly reading of the scriptures. He read from the scroll of Isaiah and then he told everyone these words were about him. And that brings us all the way back to the early church where Paul told Timothy to keep this practice going to immerse the whole community in the story of the scriptures. Okay, but here's the thing, most people back then didn't know how to read, so they had to do it publicly. But I can read the Bible by myself. Yeah, and you should totally do that. But don't underestimate the power of this ancient practice. Reading the Bible by yourself can be hard. It can be easy to get distracted. But something happens when you hear God's word read aloud and when you're with other people. And besides, it's really easy. You don't need anyone to preach or teach. You just need to listen to the scriptures and then talk about what you've heard. This is what God's people have always done when they enter into new and uncertain times. They remember their story and who they are through the public reading of the scriptures. Hey guys, thanks for watching this Bible Project video. We're a nonprofit.
0: It's a little loud.
1: We have a lot.
0: Well, there you have it. A nice little uh, reminder of the importance of the public, le- public reading Of Scripture was that a bit on the loud side? Well, I'm seeing some. I'll I'll do a little down, just right, right in between, make everyone happy. Um, (laughs) I was sitting there going, "Oh my goodness, uh, my ears hurt." Uh, You know, in the early church, what they would do. Uh, is they would have a sermon, but it was, a, it was like a 10-minute sermon. And they spent about an hour just reading the Bible aloud. They would jump from genre to genre, start somewhere in the Old Testament, move to a psalm, and then an epistle of Paul, back to a psalm, and they would always end on, well, the Gospels, Jesus. And that was much of the church service. And then right after they had the communion together and ate and drank, and uh, it was a party. Uh, public reading changes you. I can still remember as a child the Luke passage every Christmas Eve. Uh, Reading that, of course, you know, you're all excited in anticipation as a child and just being kind of ingrained in you the story. What's going on here? I remember more public reading of Scripture than I do sermons. That's something to consider. Now, how do you incorporate this discipline in your life? Uh, it's not that hard. Pick up a book and read it, I suppose. But here's a few uh, options just to be a bit more, uh, well, have a more complete answer. A regular study of the scriptures or theology with, others or, uh, with other people or by yourself. A Bible study, a book reading group, our church does uh, this sort of stuff. Pretty regularly, we have a men's Bible study, Monday mornings. Shout out. Uh, Read a good book. There's a lot that are just really helpful. I just thought of two that it, obviously read the Bible. We're going to talk about that more with the next spiritual discipline. But pick a book that is just super helpful, Augustine's Confessions. You read that and you will resonate with Augustine. He's super real. It's arguably the first autobiography, where he's just talking about himself and his sin issues and how he doesn't want Christ, but then he does, and he reflects all the way from before becoming a Christian to after becoming a Christian and everything in between. He'll even admit, before I was a Christian, my main prayer to God was, Oh, Lord, give me chastity, but oh, not yet. And you go, "Wow, you could say that. This is Bishop Augustine, the lead pastor of HIPPO, Augustine. Um, HIPPO was a place in North Africa. Or Martin Bootser's uh, Bootzer is how you pronounce that --Instruction in Christian love. It's another classic. It's skinny. You can buy it on Amazon. It's super practical. Uh, this was a mentor, a really important person in the Protestant Reformation. He's probably the most important person you don't know, that's not really accessible as much. Um, and unfortunately, or fortunately now, he's being rediscovered more so even in the popular culture. Bootser is a really helpful book there. Um, read it. Think about God. Keep coming up with more questions. Like, read the Psalms. David asks a lot of questions to God. Ask questions. Think well about God. And I'm more talking to students here, I suspect um, it's not uh, an issue at all levels, but the air to avoid, and it's something that I see often, myself, at least in the academic world, study becoming the end in itself, um, it's kind of comical when you think about it. It's like I'm studying my wife, and that's the whole point of my marriage. Like, I know you so well. <laughs> and you've got to know how delusional and silly that is, but sometimes I find students do that. Um, something to remember, and this will be the 10th spiritual discipline, is uh, well, obviously avoid this. The more you learn, the more you realize how little you know. And if that's not happening, something's wrong. Something's broken. The more I know, at least this may be, maybe maybe at least I can say this to myself. The more I know, the less I really think I do know. Contemplation is just rapt attention to God. This like um, you know when somebody stares at something beautiful and they just sort of look lost and happy, like the creepy stare. As I tell my students, that's contemplation. Let's study. Bad. That's so cool. Don't use it as a weapon is what I always tell my students. Don't find gold nuggets to then beat, or, you know, that's a bad metaphor. I just switch it. Don't don't use theology learning as a weapon. Just stop it if that starts happening. (laughs) So how do you study? What I recommend, and I do find this really helpful, is the practice. It goes back to... Well, there's a lot of arguments about this. 200 AD, some make the case that really more in the 500s this developed. It's called lectio uh, Divina, or sacred reading. And what this is, it integrates learning and your relationship with God, meditation as well as contemplation, analyzing as well as just being mesmerized. You know? And I find that I, I, I think... I remember this well enough, I could probably explain it, but it's almost like there's two ways to read the Bible, devotionally or academically. Like you learn it, you read the Bible, and you're like, I'm learning so much about history and the context, and woo, that's so cool. And then you're like, wait, I didn't meet God. Or the other way around, where you think it's disconnected in one way or another. Well, this is a way of integrating it. And think of this as for. Um, stages, although they all overlap and they should overlap, but there's these distinct stages. And the first one is obvious. The ancient people would read books out loud, right? So they they're even mean read this out loud. You can do it quietly to yourself if you want. If somebody catches you reading out loud, they think you can't read. Right? Back in, you know, 2,000 years ago, it was a way of letting the words hit you. Uh, So, read. Don't end there. Meditate. I like the analogy of reading as taking a bite of food. Meditating is chewing it, chewing the food. Right? Chew on it. Just read and read. Obviously, read it well, and you're going to keep learning things as you go, but just read it. Meditate. Let it hit you. As you're feeling scripture hit you, And all this new stuff, all this fun stuff, all the context and the interesting drama, even soap opera, you'll often find in the Bible, pray it over yourself, pray it over your life, over your spouse, over your career. Just bring God into this, right? Um, And finally, so uh, finally is contemplation, which is the idea of, recognizing and kind of being this uh, giving God the creepy stare and going, wow, God, you are awesome, right? So you bite the food, you chew the food, you savor the food, and then you absorb it, right? And that's the analogy often used. I find it really helpful. Um, This is a whole uh, eight-week, six-week session in itself The Lectio Divina, this is something that's often discussed, sort of forgotten in some evangelical circles today, along with spiritual formation in general. Um, But this is how people would read. And again, it's integrating all kinds. It's integrating your head and your heart, if you like that way of thinking, because they're not really separated. Make sure to do that. I, I think the biggest thing, I think, Uh, when we first start learning a lot about scripture and we learn about the historical context, when somebody else doesn't see that, we like to kind of, no, you're not reading it in a historical context. You don't understand. That's not about you, et cetera. And ironically, what sometimes we end up doing when we approach the Bible this way is we actually make the Bible less, less relatable. Read the Bible in your own context. Jesus said it's all about him the end of Luke, Jesus says, all of that is about me. I am Yahweh. I'm that God speaking. I'm Adam. I'm the whole point all along. I'm the new Adam, the right Adam. I'm the new Moses, the right Moses. All of the Old Testament, all scripture is about Jesus. So if you've, I had a professor that called this, um, I can't remember exactly what he called it, but um, It's the right way of reading scripture. Whenever you read something in the Bible, if that turns your heart to Jesus, you're doing it right. When you start doing that, then find out all the juicy historical context and nerd out. That's totally cool. Don't use it as a weapon. If somebody reads a verse and applies it to themselves, congratulations, Jesus said, do that. Now there's bad ways of doing this and better ways, but I'm just saying there's, uh, I often will hear, well, Jeremiah, that famous passage, I know the plans I have for you. And I'll often hear somebody like pray that for themselves and somebody, you know, be like, well, that's not really about you. It's about Israel. And the response is, yes, it's about Israel. And who is Israel? All yeses are in Christ. All promises are yes in him. And that's beautiful. We can read scripture in light of Jesus and savor it. That's the right way to do it. Keep learning more, and you will learn the historical context, and you'll realize that promise is actually kind of not a good one at first. It's a promise of ruination. And then finally, restoration, because Jesus, death, resurrection. Cool, okay. So what's the Bible for you? It's kind of a quick summary here, but there's sort of two, if you think of a continuum I remember reading the Bible It's just merely a history book, you know. It's like, this is written to all these people a long time ago, and I just have to figure out all the context. And then on the other hand, it's just a self-help book. Um, sort of know your tendency um, and, and um, you know, keep growing up. Keep reading the Bible better. See the historical context and see that all fulfilled in Jesus. Remember, the Jewish leaders got the historical context. They got all that part. They didn't get the Jesus part. I am Yahweh. Uh, that's Jesus talking. That's not, that's not me. <laughs> so uh, how does this change you? I think it's probably self-evident. The more you... Uh, dig into something and you learn about something, talk to some expert in some field and they're not going to act like they know everything. They're going to realize how small they are in some sense, their dependency, their lack of knowledge, their lack of understanding. You know, a lot of my field just forces me to dig into people that are way smarter than all of us and I'm not capable of being at that level. That's healthy. The more you know your own dependency, the know you more the, the more you know God's wisdom, God's understanding, God's perfect knowledge of all things. The more you know yourself, the more you know God, and vice versa. Study transforms you quickly. A, a, a short class, even a, 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 a teaching, will transform students. Just learning, like just seeing something a new way is like, whoa, and now I see it everywhere. Exactly. Study will change you. The example I have here, and this is somebody that I will, I'm not an expert or anything, but I study origin a lot, especially his views. Origin of Alexandria was um, you know, to put it mildly, a freak of nature. Um, So, Origin of Alexandria is somebody who really thrived in studying philosophy uh, after his conversion, well, he converted at a young age. The Bible, Um, this is somebody who encountered a wealthy individual pretty early in his life, and this individual is like, man, you are brilliant. So, this wealthy individual hired for him six stenographers and a secretary, And don't do that for me because I cannot take advantage of it this way. He used, he would write six different books at the same time. Six different books, right? He'd write his commentary on John, which, by the way, is on the first five words in Greek on John. Commentary on John, his theology on Christ, his book on the Trinity, And he would say the first paragraph of each book. He had all six stenographers there. Say it out loud, blah, 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 really quickly. And then they would write it down. Then second book, he has all this in his head. And talk to Origen. He didn't think he got things, right? The more you study, the more you realize, oh, my goodness, God, how many questions I have. And that's healthy. Be like an Origen. Uh, he was an interesting human being, and there was a lot of oddities about him. I know I'm, all my uh, Christian history students, if they're listening to this, are kind of giggling because he's also very weird, and we won't get into that because it's rated R, and you know. Uh, so we'll, we'll, we'll move that for another day. A really interesting person. Uh, also, our own, I don't know why that word is hidden, our own tradition as a church. I, I've quoted Calvin and Edwards in here. Uh, But study something that this, uh, what we call the Reformed tradition, and what that means is not Lutheran, but Protestant. There's Reformed churches back in the 1500s till today, and they've typically valued this pretty well. The Calvinist work ethic, it's often called. Study something I think that's close to us. I've heard somebody call Redemption Arcadia a nerdy church. I don't know, but that's what I was told. We value this study. Keep doing it. Let it speak to you. Let Jesus speak through Scripture. Don't let a seminary student tell you otherwise. Don't let somebody tell you that you have to see all the historical context to get anything out of it. Yes, you should learn the historical context, but just read the Bible. And let it hit you in that moment. And then you'll read it the next time and it'll hit you differently. And then you're going to keep learning and learning. That's the way it should be. Meditation. The ninth. uh, This is another one that's familiar. The word comes up in scripture. I'm going to have to go a little quickly. I need to get to contemplation. Uh, The whole point is moving in a certain direction. Meditation is on one step towards this direction. We're often commanded in Scripture, especially in the Old Testament, meditate on the words of Scripture. This is a cognitive ruminating. It's chewing, so to speak. It's reading something going, hmm, interesting, a lot going on here, that sort of thing. Meditation is a way of being um, a person after God's own heart. David is called this, which is kind of funny because he was a murderer and a... Well, you can, well, definitely an adulteress, we'll just end there. And he's a person after God's own heart. We're called to do this as well, of course. What does it look to be after God's own heart? Meditate on his word. Meditate on all of his word, New New Testament, Old Testament. Scripture opens up Jesus before our view, since all scripture is really just about him the end of his ministry, after his resurrection, right before his ascension, he has to clarify this to his disciples. Guys, this the law and the prophets, it's all about me, and he even clarifies, you can only understand it through me. Uh, here's Edwards, yet again, the chief of the means of grace is the word of God, that standing revelation of the mind and will of God that he gives the world. And It is, as it were, the sum of all means. Knowing scripture, meditating on it, well, if that's God's word, this is something very close to what should characterize our own life. Be that person that's just chewing on the Bible and savoring it all day. That's it. So this is a pretty uh, a pretty easy one. I guess this is we're right on time because this was a bit of a shorter discussion. Uh, but think of meditation as creating a certain space where God can enge- engage us. Um, if you just leave your spiritual life to prayer, yeah, we talked about the spiritual discipline of prayer and fasting. And you're not, uh, your mind isn't being made new. You're not encountering ideas that conflict with you. Read the Bible. There's a lot of ideas in the Bible that conflict with you, even down to your core. Um, well, God's gonna, God engages us in different directions by meditating Scripture, learning new things, and savoring it, savoring the different flavors. And I realize it sounds like I'm killing that uh, metaphor, but it works. Meditation is a means of getting God's word word to settle, settle in you. Reading words, and then, and you kind of, maybe you've done, you memorize it, and that's getting close to what meditation looks like. It's kind of rote and rudimentary and boring and all that at first, but eventually it becomes who you are. And that's the idea. Become who you are. And remember, uh, this is me talking to my students more, the point of meditation is not to master the Bible, right, as if, right? The point is to be mastered by God through his word. The point is to let God speak to you, right? Now, obviously, you have to bring your understanding. You have to bring a a good, healthy thinking up front, and you have to engage God, but let him speak to you. If you encounter something that makes you uncomfortable, God's probably talking to you. Maybe you misunderstand something. That's true, too. So how do you incorporate this? And I go back to the Lectio yet again. Really easy. Remember the four. These aren't discrete, separate steps, but remember the Lectio. Don't just read. Read it and then meditate. And that was this second point. Ruminate savor. Whatever catches your attention, whatever sort of raises a flag, bring that to prayer. I would bring in prayer here as well with meditation. See the Psalms as guidance on how does it look like to encounter God through scripture. Here's David writing down his thoughts and letting God speak to him as he's speaking to God. So again, the Lectio Divina, this is a way of incorporating Study, reading, learning, and actual savoring of the food of the well food. Yeah, there you go. Scripture is called compared to food. So I guess that really works. I'm just being biblical. And how does it change us? I think this really uh, overlaps with the last point about study. Uh, The more you learn, the more you encounter God more you know yourself, the more you know God. Um, and you know this moments of meditation where something just clicks. You're thinking about some passage, maybe a Psalm, maybe something from Paul and something just clicks for you. And you hear the spirit being like, yeah, yeah, you should repent of that sin issue, this idol, etc." That's it. Meditation is a discipline. And so maybe if this is yours, take this for the next eight weeks, every day or every other day. Be intentional. Maybe go through one book of the Bible, slowly, don't go fast, slowly, and just do it intentionally. And the point of a discipline is when it hurts, you keep going. Go even harder. Whenever it hurts, like when I'm running and it starts to burn, I'm like, yeah, it's working now. And there's something about that with the spiritual disciplines as well. That's where you really meet God. It's when you're most frustrated. The best Psalms are where David is just super frustrated. And he encounters God so clearly. Ah, glad I went that extra mile. Ah, Burn those extra calories. And that also is killed. Um, That was a joke, y'all. An example of, I'm a little extra tired today, but all this I swear I'm doing with a smile. Um, So Jerome is the person I think of who, uh, really, all kinds of stuff uh, I could have brought back study to Jerome as well. He's often depicted as a, what would you call it, an ascetic? Um, He didn't have many friends, so this is intentional, all right, there's often a skull pictured there, and that means he's contemplative. Um, people thought of it as sort of deathly and boring and, ugh, Jerome. He wasn't a really nice guy. I don't want to quote stuff that he would say. He didn't respect anyone during his day except for Augustine, that Augustine of hippo guy. He's not, <laughs> he had a, some strong language for people. But what he did well... What he did well was reading Scripture and meditating on it. And we still have his commentaries. We still have his books. Really influential. Somebody who just, you know, at times maybe too much, locked himself in a room and just read God's Word and, and savored it. And yeah, he needed sanctification too, don't we all? Um, so Jerome... Interesting person. He learned Hebrew, by the way. He's one of the few Bible scholars back in that day. This is in the 400s AD. One of the few that knew Greek and Hebrew fluently. He studied Hebrew under Jewish people in the Holy Land during that day. And that was unusual because it fell out among Christians at the time. And he learned Hebrew, in his own words, to overcome his lustly desires. I just tell my students, you got sin issues? Just learn Hebrew. Uh, It is a fun language. What an interesting language. I love it. Finally, and we got 10 minutes, this isn't typically characterized as a spiritual discipline. You can think of this as a culmination of all the spiritual disciplines. And this is the idea of contemplation. Again, a word not found in the Bible, a theme everywhere in the Bible. And this is the idea that in Christ we see God right? I know, I always tell my students, God's invisible. (laughs) Well, you read the Bible, you can see God. That's the ultimate hope. Contemplating is seeing God now, being raptly attentive to the triune God. I don't know why it keeps going blank. Um, A lot of biblical references, I'm cutting a lot of this out, The theme of seeing God develops as early as the Old Covenant, the Mosaic Covenant given to Moses. Uh, Moses is like, show me your glory. And God's like, I'll show you my back. You know, you maybe know know some of these references. Uh, I'll show you, but it'll be through a veil, through something else. And Moses keeps praying and praying. And yet, even in the midst of all of this, this is um, kind of a high point of the story. It talks about the people, well, the elders of Israel Eating and drinking and seeing God, right? It's not cryptic at all. It's just what? They're looking upon Yahweh. Beautiful, right? Eating and drinking and seeing God are closely attached. It's not a mistake that Paul says, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do it all for God's glory, right? There's something about eating and drinking. We all know it because we live, I mean, come on, Central Phoenix, some of the best restaurants. Oh my goodness, food makes us happy because it's a sign of God. That's what contemplation is all about. David prays this as well, to see, to behold the beauty of the Lord. One thing I asked, he says, to live in the house of the Lord all the days of my life and to behold the beauty of the Lord. In John... Man, why isn't this talked about more? We love quoting the first part, but then, man, Jesus drops a mic, and we all miss it. Thomas is really, uh, Thomas is all of us, like, he's just open and honest, like, I don't get it. Help me get it, Jesus. Um, Thomas said to Jesus, Lord, we don't know where where you're going. Jesus is talking about the ascension and all this, like, he doesn't get it because he probably shouldn't yet. (laughs) So how can we know the way? We don't know where you're going. How, do, how can we know how to go to heaven? Jesus answered, I'm the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Jesus is saying, as you look upon me, you're seeing the Father. As you know me, you know the Father. Wow, isn't that, I mean, it's just gorgeous, isn't it? And Paul, Paul in, a, in a summary, there's a lot going on in 2 Corinthians, uh, but the idea of the new covenant being this uh, idea that we're beholding God in Christ and being changed into him, right? Not given all the, these crazy attributes, but we're given his justice, his righteousness. We call that justification or sanctification, depending we're giving his immortality? You will never die. Well, because no more death, because we're in God. God's immortal. You, you see how that works? Incorruptibility? We can no longer fall again. We won't just be immortal. We can't fall again. Why? Because we're in Christ. He's God. God can't sin. Bam! Right? The beauty of the new covenant is the idea that we're seeing the glory of the Lord, even now in some respect, as though reflected in a mirror. And as we're seeing this, we're being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. How does this happen? Wow, this is all Trinitarian, isn't it? From the Lord, the Spirit. Right? So the Spirit bonds you to Jesus. You look upon Jesus and the Spirit transforms you within. The new covenant where one day for all eternity, what are we going to do? eat, drink, and look upon God. Creepy stare. Do you see that? Contemplation. God, you're so beautiful. And by the way, it's creepy stare is very intentional. Yes, I teach college students, so they really get it. But yes, we're built, we're wired to appreciate and love and savor beauty. And you know this, and it's sort of awkward, but like we all know it, right? And it's like, oh, don't do that, little Johnny. Rather, you should probably say, awesome, that's what God is. You know what I mean? You are long after beauty itself. God made things beautiful for a reason. That's contemplation. So think of this as the spiritual discipline of seeing beauty, lowercase b, in all things, of being reminded of uppercase beauty in everything, all created things, Are signs of God. Remember that all create trees are saying something about God. Food, sex, money, animals—I almost said aminals. I don't know why. (laughs) Right? And this is the spiritual discipline of letting everything point back to God. Not really often talked as a spiritual discipline. Why I, sus- I don't like it, first of all, but I suspect it's because this is really the heart of everything. You serve, you fast, everything is about seeing God in all things. And I think we do that well as individuals in some areas and we need to grow in others. So contemplation, there you go. Quickly, um, I don't need to focus much attention here, I don't suspect, but I often hear the word used, one of my favorite sports commentators, I won't name his name because he's one of my favorites, but he'll often use the word contemplation for thinking really hard about something. That's really more meditation. So contemplation and meditation, I just want to contrast them. Now, these are part of the Lectio, and they should all sort of just flow one from the other, of course, but there is a difference. Think of meditation as prayerful, prayerful, prayerfully pondering the word of God, where contemplation prayerfully—I can't say that word. I should just delete it. Ponders <laughs> God, <laughs> right? So one is focused on the word, and the other's on the person of God. Oh God, what are you like? That's just a great way to just like start your thought life. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, I guess theologians have a bad rap. Sometimes you're like, you think you know God. It's like, uh, I just have some words like infinity and love. But really, imagine God. Wow. Focused on the person of God. Where meditation is a bit more, a bit more intellectual or discursive, contemplation is more imaginative and emotive. Right? You know that because you know the difference between somebody Studying and analyzing the Grand Canyon, and somebody just like full awestruck and And what is really changing you? The awestruckness is like, I am small, I am finite, this thing's big, how much bigger, Creator? Right? Contemplation is this wow, my life has to change because of what I'm seeing right now. Meditation is analyzing and understanding and chewing, ruminating, and contemplation is the creepy stare. It's focused on beauty. Be captivated by God. If you think you understand God, read the Bible again. And I like this definition. It comes from uh, a combination of Thomas Aquinas a thousand years ago and John Webster, the late John Webster awesome theologian, passed away a couple years ago. I think that's it. And contemplation, I know, by the way, if you Google this, there's going to be like 4,000 definitions of it and a lot of people that don't really understand it. It's one of those words that um, starting in the 1950s especially, some Christians rejected as a mystical non-Christian thing. But before 1950, this is just something you know, that everyone talked about. And, and you can see why. Isn't this the point of life? You know, in some sense, see God in the face of your spouse. See God in the most delicious, oh, I'm kind of cutting to the chase here, the most delicious food. Steinbeck, I'm going to have to skip Steinbeck for sake of Stein. Sorry, Steinbeck, you're not scripture. <laughs> um, Uh, We already used some of these analogies. Perhaps you'll find these uh, helpful, perhaps not. I've kind of used them already, honestly. Uh, Contemplation is cutting to the core of where this world came from and why I like certain things and why I'm drawn towards certain things. And it's God being like, why don't you listen to me? I'm so obvious. You know, like Paul reflecting on this. Uh, Ever since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes are clearly on display. And yet we all repress it. We all repress God in the created world. Different starting points. It's not that hard to think of these. Find passages where God's character is demonstrated. And if that doesn't just kind of like cause you to drool somehow... Well, I mean, something's broken. I, I, and, and here's the thing, not just the good stuff. Jesus overturning the temple uh, tables and the, you know, all the money changers. Read that and go, oh, wow, God, you really hate sin. Oh, God, you really. Contemplation has a ring to it here of just being raptly attentive to the God who's kind of scary. Can we all admit it? In the words of C.S. Lewis, talking about Aslan, but he's talking about God and Christ. Uh, Aslan's not safe, but he's good. That's contemplation. Read theology books. I recommended a couple. Um, there's a couple more to recommend. I don't need to recommend more books in here. Look at Nature. Nature. And then look at it again. I'm kind of, like, when I first moved here, I was, like, contemplating God in the mountains around here because I came from flat, like, Illinois, Chicago area, and like, whoa. And then you kind of get, like, used to it, and you're like, oh, yeah, that's just normal. But no, kind of be a child and be like, ooh, ah. That's what Jesus says to do. Eat a freaking burger. I mean, I don't know why. I must have been really losing it at some point. (laughs) eat a burger and that's the, again, food tastes good as a reminder of the new heavens and new earth our whole life is about being drawn towards that it's a sign of God right every time you eat food, the whole point of it, and this is why we, we pray beforehand because we're supposed to remind yourself God I love you, God I love you, remind me of it and then we just eat the burger and we go into la la land like in our own realm, but that's where, that's got right there he compares himself to food, guys Eat me, says Jesus. Yeah, his following kind of decreased after that in John. What was that, John 6? I'm the bread of life. Eat me. Eat my flesh. Drink my blood. A burger is meant to remind us of Jesus. Or kale. (laughs) If Kale's your thing. Eat kale. I don't know how you do that, but you are more spiritual than I am. A couple examples. I'll be really quick here. When I think of contemplation done well, I think of a guy named Gregory. Did I talk about Gregory of Nyssa? I don't think I have. He was a bishop uh, in the East in Asia Asia Minor. No one calls it Turkey, modern-day Turkey, in the 300s. And he was an introvert. He liked to be alone. He was happily married. He talks a lot. Isn't that weird? Oh, by the way, back, back then, bishops could be married. But he's just somebody who lived the contemplative life, intentionally wanted to see everything as leading to God. Right? And that's just who I think of, uh, Gregory of Nyssa right there. Um, See, he's got a halo, so you can trust him. That's just artwork. It's always got a meaning. I also think of the capuchin, or capuchin, is probably how you'd pronounce this with the capuchin. That does sound better. Uh, the Capuchin monks. Now, I mean, you know, it's easy, to, it's easy to contemplate God in life, I think. It's easy to eat something delicious and go, God. It's easy to look at something beautiful and go, God. But Christianity is looking upon God in the face of Christ, dead, crucified, and seeing God perhaps most clearly revealed. God is most clearly seen when he's most hidden in death. And there's um, these monks would always remind themselves that God defeated death. And it comes out in morbid ways that make us uncomfortable today. They made a freaking crypt made out of human remains of monks before them. Sorry, if this bothers you, you can just kind of look away. This is all a giant declaration. Death, you're dead. Death, you're my bestie. Death, there's nothing scary about you. A whole monkish order. And they're actually more normal than you realize. We're so removed from death today. We don't have to see it for long. Not to get graphic, y'all, but like this is something people talk about before 1950. Uh, you don't have to smell it. You don't have to deal with it. They do it. We just look at the prettied-up remains. But that's not the way Christianity has been. Death is the ultimate reminder that even in death we see God because he identified himself with death. He conquered death, right? Look at the cross. That's where God is most clearly revealed. That's it, in death. So they made crypts. Uh, there's there's it's just all, I think, I don't know how many monks. They're former monks. And the writing on the wall, I love this stuff but maybe I'm weird. For today's standards, I am. For back then, maybe not. What you are now, we once were. What we are now, you shall be. A reminder, death isn't final. Death is real. Death is a reminder of who you are, of what you did, of what you deserve. And yet, it's just a giant joke on death because death is dead. Right, so you can, contempl- you can enjoy God even when terrible things happen, even in the midst of death. So I wanted to end there because this isn't, contemplation isn't all happy-go-lucky. Um, contemplation is seeing God in all things and in his defeat of those things.